Have you ever thought about the design of your workspace? The actual physical design around you and how it impacts how you work, how you create, how you collaborate, how your teams get together and foster ideas. Maybe the design of your workplace right now during these crazy times. Maybe your workplace is your home office. Today's guest talks about how design and how story impact the workplace. Yes, our guest today is Steve Chaparro, a noted keynote speaker and culture design strategist. How awesome does that sound? It Very sounds cool. like a lot of fun, right? Very impressive. <laughs> and like Nate mentioned before, he is at that intersection of design and culture, the design of a physical space, but then also the design of people that consume that space. And we have that conversation of how or whether physical space informs the culture or if it's the other way around, if it's the people that informs how a structure should be made or not made. Um, we had a great conversation around transformation and especially now, like you said, we're having to adjust how we interact, not only with each other, but also with our customers and in general, adjusting to a new way of doing work and how that impacts culture. Yeah, and what does it mean to maintain a company culture when times are crazy like they are now and a lot of your company is working from home? Right. How do you maintain that culture and what's really at the core of your brand? One of the things that Steve gets into that I actually love is storytelling in business and how your brand communicates their story and translates it into a brand promise that actually becomes a viable brand experience for your customers. And I think at the heart of all the conversations that we had was the humanity of it all and designing everything with the human at the heart of everything. He talks about intentionality, about being present, and really about how culture is more of an operating system. I wish we could have had three or four more hours with Steve. There was so much more content and so much more wisdom to be gleaned from him but I know that everyone here will love the conversation and what we have learned from Steve will be tremendously valuable for you, no matter what business you're in, no matter where you are in life. I do wanna say that this is our very first podcast recording where all of us were completely remote from our own homes. So if you do hear a difference in the audio, that's what it is. We're trying to figure out how we transform and we continue to create great content for you. So thanks for sticking with us. It was a great relevant conversation that I hope everybody can glean a little tip or two and how they can make life a little bit better for themselves today and for tomorrow. So I hope you take a moment and join us. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. We're so thrilled to have you on this episode of Take a Moment. Now, we always start out with a hard-hitting question. Oh, no. So here's, yeah. So if you're not sitting down, sit down now. Now, you're a father, yes? Yes, um, I am. I know you have one have son. Two boys, two boys, 11 and 14. 11 and 14. So here's our first hard-hitting question. What have you learned from your children that has changed your life? I answer that with a story. I'm a pretty hard driver in business and I love checking off boxes. I love conquering hills. I love hobnobbing over a cup of coffee when I'm on the road. 
so maybe in, in that respect, I'm an extrovert. And I remember one time coming home on a Saturday and I was in a sense grieving that I was not doing any of that stuff. I was a little bitter. I got no one to talk to, no one to have coffee with. The thrill is gone, if you will. And then I realized that I was sitting four feet away from my kids. And like there were two people, beautiful human beings there that would just cherish my time. And I had been gone on the road and, and here I was complaining and bitter inside my head and heart about not, me not being there. And so I felt really like, you know, I used the word convicted. I felt like, so I went to my youngest son and I said, you know, Brendan, I, I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry that I've been disconnected. I feel like we're not doing something fun. You know, we, we are not going to a really fun place today. We don't have this great field trip. And my son said, dad, that's okay. I'm just glad you're here. So the gift of presence, the gift of presence is many times what our kids, our loved ones, many times that is what people, de they desire of us, as opposed to all the things and all the places. So the gift of presence, and I think that's a lesson that we could probably all learn and yearn for in this time period that we're in, of not having physical presence, but maybe even just digital presence, being intentional about being present with people. You know, one of the things that's interesting to me, I, I love your idea of being present. And, you know, during this weird, weird time where a lot of us, uh, the only interactions we have with people outside of our house are via, is via Zoom. I'm wondering if it's easier for you working remotely and from home and being grounded in a sense, is it easier or more difficult for you to kind of put the phone down, step away from the computer and really truly be present with your family or is it a different challenge where you have to make a concerted effort and a different way to do that? I'll give you an answer, but ask me tomorrow and I'll probably give you a different answer because it changes day by day, if not hour by hour. I, I think what I'm learning about this time about being present is that all of these Zoom calls that we're having, you know, this the whole real thing of Zoom fatigue that we're hearing about as well. I think it's because when we are on a Zoom call and we're having meetings and we're having engagements, I think we are hyper aware and even hyper intentional about being engaged on that phone call. And so I think a lot of times you have the video, you have the audio, you have the chat, sometimes you have the participant window, you have all these different things that are doing. It's almost like seven different streams of information that's coming in at one time. And, it, and it's like, it almost like it's a hyper drain in our emotional mental bandwidth, if you will. So I think, I think it's, on one hand, easier because we're, we're forced to be intentional, be intentional on these Zoom calls. And I think sometimes when we're in person, while we love that, and I think sometimes we think of the physical presence as being richer, and I, and I don't disagree with that. And I think some people are saying that, you know, you're more aware of the micro expressions, the body, you know, the nonverbals and things like that. I do think that that's true. But I also think that many times we can also be allow, since we do have a 360 degree awareness in when we're present with people physically, because of that, we shut a lot of things off because we intentionally make them white noise. And I think we take things for granted, at least before COVID, there's the the temptation to take things for granted and turn things off. But I think with Zoom calls in this whole time that we're in right now, we're hyper aware of things. I think it's a good thing, but it's also knowing that some of the, the price of that is, is being sometimes a little more physically, mentally, and maybe even emotionally tired. A little bit more drained, right? Like system overload. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
you talked about physical space and I know you are an architect mm -hmm. by training. Tell us a little bit about how physical space informs culture or is it the other way around where culture should be actually informing this actual physical space? And just talk us through a little bit about that. Mari, you're giving me chills because this is like <laughs> such a, a passionate question I love to, to think about. I think it's both. And the reason why I say that, I go back to a quote by Winston Churchill. This was in a time when in World War II, when the parliament building had been bombed, and they are kind of deliberating over the question of, do we rebuild the same size? Do we rebuild in a bigger, bigger way? And he said this, he said, we shape our buildings, thereafter they shape us. So I think in many ways, the physical environment of the workplace can reflect in some cases and embody the cultural values of that organization. In some cases, there's a dissonance in, in that interplay between the physical environment and the cultural values. And so if you're thinking about physical space moving forward, you could possibly redesign the physical environment, either one, to continue to embody those cultural values, or two, to use it as a tool to reshape the desired culture. And so let's say, for instance, if we're talking about a cultural value of collaboration, if this organization truly has a value of collaboration and you look at the spaces in which they house those activities, you could say, yes, that absolutely facilitates those. But in many cases, they don't have spaces that adequately house those types of things. They don't empower them. They don't encourage them. It actually is a disruptor, a barrier to that type of activity. So when I was at the last firm that I was at, Visionary Studios, we talked a lot about spatial storytelling. How does the space tell the story of the organization that you're in? And say some of those values are, again, collaboration, innovation. If you value transparency, what can the materiality of the things that you use to, to build your spaces, what, how do they all reflect that? Many organizations that understand that their current environment doesn't facilitate that, then they can use design as a place to, to reshape that environment to also reshape the culture itself as well. So talking about collaboration and wanting to foster certain values, we sometimes see companies and organizations jumping to, oh, well, that automatically means open spaces, yeah. or that automatically means this big company, awesome tech giant company that's leading the way, they're doing it this way, so I'm going to do it that way too, because that's the outcome that I want without really taking into account, like you said, about who are my people, who are, yeah. who am I designing for? Tell us a little bit about that importance of knowing that your employees just aren't beings, you know, yeah. that they're all interchangeable, but yeah. they are actually unique to Absolutely. that company that you have. Yeah, I think a lot of when the open plan became very prevalent, say six to nine years ago, we looked at the Facebooks and you looked at the Googles and we thought, oh my gosh, that was a wonderful place. Like, I want that. I, I also warn people to understand that many times those early open plan spaces were the product of ideas that came about 10 years ago. And so even the Googles and the Facebooks have learned and matured and evolved even since the open plan became very prevalent. Now, the open plan is good for some, and it's not a new thing. Design in office buildings back in the 30s and 40s, you know, there was almost like the corporate version 
of a factory. And so then you talk about these the sea of desks and typewriters. This is actually not a new thing, but there was also lessons that were learned even back then about the drawbacks of an open plant. But when the Googles and the Facebooks brought it to play, it was the new thing to do. There are a lot of drawbacks to the open plant. And you know, a lot of people, like say for instance, engineers who are very much about they're task-oriented people and they're going to write code and they're going to do a lot of things at their desk. So they need concentration between them and the screen. Their relationship is with the screen. And so anything that will distract them outside of their periphery, that's going to hamper their ability to do their work. So there isn't a silver bullet in terms of a way for you to design your office. There isn't one type of space that will suffice everybody. And so I like to employ what I call spatial diversity. It's an idea that you can have different types of spaces that facilitate different types of activities for different types of people. So even if you have an engineer who might want to have a pretty private space, they're not gonna want that private space for the whole eight to 10 hours in that specific day. They may relegate a certain part of their day where they're gonna answer emails and they may actually go into an open area on a sofa or on a love seat or whatever and actually just have the the laptop on their lap as they're answering emails some may say well wouldn't that require more square footage per person i would say absolutely not if you do it right you apply not only psychology and art of design and the business side of things almost the engineering pragmatic side of things you could actually have less square footage per person and still offer that spatial diversity steve you, I love your terms of spatial storytelling and spatial diversity. Those are new terms for me. And I'm wondering if you could kind of describe to us a company that you have seen do both of those things really well. And what do they look like and what, what do they do? What do they incorporate and how do they sustain both of those things? The companies that employ this type of spatial diversity and, and spatial storytelling are those that are going to have different types of spaces that facilitate collaboration. There could be these conference rooms that maybe you might have your team working with the client team together. So you're inviting the client team to actually work with you when, and design alongside you. You might have a collaboration space that only is for six to eight people. That's more of a team collaboration. But also you may have rooms that are of three and to six people that are more for, okay, hey, we're gonna hunker down and we're gonna get some real work done over a multi-day period. You can also have the open plan office. You know, that's, that's a really hard place to make a phone call. So a lot of times they're really great. I love the phone booths. Uh, phone booth example of being able to go into a four by four room and just make phone calls or even take a video call and you don't need to worry about the ambient noise. It's pretty soundproof. You have open spaces to just commune and get together, you know, hang out, you know, either after hours or at lunch. It's really facilitating all those different types of interactions that are, are really powerful. I wonder, you know, you're, you're a culture design strategist and that title is awesome and it implies a lot of things. And I'm wondering what your perspective is on the kind of new state of affairs where many of us find that we're working from home and in companies of all sizes how do those companies maintain a sense of their culture of their own diversity of their own storytelling when everybody is working remotely can that be done and if so how 
Absolutely, it can be done. And I think a word that I, I referenced before is the primary lens through which we can think about that. And I think it's intentionality to be very intentional. I remember I was when I was in the real estate development world back in the housing boom in the early 2000s, and we were making money hand over fist. We weren't actually being good business people. We didn't have to be because the houses were selling themselves, houses were rising. And it's like, all we were doing is we're basically order takers, almost like waiters and waitresses. But then in 2005 and 2006 hit, and we were no longer managing profit, but we were managing loss. It's almost as if the tide had gone out and we were left exposed with our bad practices. I almost feel like that's where we're at right now. The tide has gone out and the luxuries, the things that we took for granted, all of these different things are no longer here and we're left exposed with who we really are in terms of our work practices, our workflows. Do we really trust each other? You know, that's another thing too. I mean, if we had trust issues before, how much more might those be revealed today when we can't peer over someone's shoulder and check on their work every single minute of the day? And so I think what has, this has caused is, is caused us to be much more intentional. Like if we're going to reach out to somebody on Slack, we don't automatically just say, hey, are you done with this, you know, XYZ thing? It, now it would be nice, hey, like, you know, if, if someone came at you with like the first thing in the morning, 730 morning with enough, you know, checking in on you, you know, first tongue in cheek response is, well, good morning to you, too. <laughs> I think this has caused us to slow down, to be a little bit more intentional, a little bit more human, a little bit more grace filled in terms of, hey, I understand we're probably not going to get as much productivity as we did before. If we're really honest, we didn't get a full 100% productivity anyways when we were working in the office. So now what can we do to be a bit more graceful? Because I truly think that everyone is collectively going through this journey of almost grieving the pre-COVID world. And I think when you're grieving, you talk about the stages of grief, there has to be some grace to allow each individual person, let alone a team and a company, to go through that process itself. So I think intentionality in our communication and our schedules and our productivity, having some rituals that when we have a Zoom call, what are some opening things that we can do so people can check in and not just jump in straight to business. But one of the beautiful things that's gonna come out of this is that our teams, our companies are gonna be much more human. I think this has almost been a time for the collective humanity to breathe, rest, and ironically, be more present. And empathy, right? Yes. Talk empathy about that understanding, that giving people grace is kind of along the lines of empathy and yeah. really understanding, hey, we're all in this together. <laughs> At the yeah, end of the day, sure. we're all yeah. in this together. Tell us a little bit about how you define culture. I feel like sometimes when we talk about culture, everybody automatically jumps to, oh, it's that ping pong table in the break room, or it's the happy hours, and that defines culture. But like you said, now, having to be more intentional, be more present, it gives us that time really to reflect on what does culture actually mean? Yeah, I love to, to define culture with one concise sentence, and I think everyone strives for that. And I think I would say that culture is really about defining the norms, the behaviors, and the customs with how people work at an organization. You can almost think of it as the operating system of an organization. 
There's the hardware, right? You can think of the hardware and those are all the technology infrastructure, maybe design of the organization. But when you think of the software, the actual bits of data or you know, the connections between everything, you think of human beings as an operating system in the organization. And I think it goes to what is it that we have decided collectively of the things that we do and the things that we don't do, the things that we accept and the things that we will not tolerate. I also think that it is not so much about the brand promise, but more about the brand experience. And that's for me a really important thing because I think brand comes up for both our customers and I think it comes up for our employees as well. The brand promises, hey, this is who we are, this is what we do, this is what you will experience when you have interacted with us. But when you ask employees and customers after they've purchased or after they've decided to come on board and then ask them, so what's your experience been? And how does that align with the brand promise, whether it's for the customer or the employee? And so all of these things become part of it. And, and I think there's so much to talk about in terms of culture itself. But I think as kind of like maybe an opening discussion, I think that that's, uh, that would be what I would think about culture. Steve, I know for almost since you were a child or since you were a child, you've had this fascination with architecture and yeah. structure. I wonder if you could kind of give us uh, an overlook of what was it about architecture, structure and design that really drew you to it from a very, very early age. I think that's fascinating. You don't hear a lot of little kids going, I want to be an architect when I grow up. And I'm wondering how and why that started in your life at a young mm -hmm. age. And then kind of give us a sense of how that propelled you in your career to where you are now. For me, it was a, a growing sense that that was a direction that I wanted to go. And even once I was in the field of architecture, understanding what parts of architecture truly resonated with me. So I, I remember age of five, I lived in Holland, Michigan at the time, and we had just come back from Great America. And I had this Bugs Bunny drawing set. And I remember sitting in front of my house and drawing the house across the street. It was a white house with a red door and just drew it. And then I remember in middle school, I had some projects and we had to talk about some historical American figure and I chose Thomas Jefferson and I drew for the report Monticello. Uh, that was, I think, eighth grade. And then in ninth grade, I remember that we had a teacher who asked us to pick a profession that we were interested and write a paper about it. I chose architecture. I don't know that there was a tremendous amount of thought into why. I chose it. I wrote about it, which required you know, research. I loved it. By the time I was in 10th grade, I had settled. Architecture was going to be my profession. And I spent 10th, 11th, and 12th grade just choosing which way I wanted to go. So I was in the field, studied it in college, started in architecture, but after being in the field for five and a half years, I became restless with architecture. I became, not I don't know, dissatisfied. I think restless is probably the right word. And I grew restless, what I call within the four walls of architecture, meaning that the principles that I learned from architecture I wanted to expand the application of those principles beyond architecture. And so at that point, I went to uh, real estate development and learned how to apply those principles in business and community development. When the market turned down, I became a financial advisor because I had to reinvent myself due to the economy. I really saw myself as a financial architect. What were the dreams of my clients? What was their current situation? 
and what can I do to design a strategy for them to get from A to B. So there was architecture in it. It wasn't creative accounting, it was financial architecture. I got back into real estate development, then architecture. When I was in the last firm where we talked about spatial storytelling and spatial diversity, I started to realize that if we were really trying to extract an understanding about the corporate or the, the organizational story, and then embody that in physical space. This somewhat required that our client organizations had a good sense of what their organizational or brand story was. And we found many times that these organizations did not have a good understanding, did not have a common language, did not have really a set of values that were thought through, or their brand promise was in misalignment from their brand experience. For me, the passion then became how can I then use all of my 20 plus years of experience in design, business, and leadership or psychology, and how can I then use those principles to help organizations transform the workplace culture through collaborative design? Steve, thanks so much. There's so much there to unpack. I can't wait to hear more about how brands communicate and create their stories and follow through on their brand promise. And I'm looking forward to getting some tips and hints for public speaking from you as a very accomplished public speaker yourself. So stay tuned for that and stick with us for more Take a Moment right after the break. Hello there, Josh Reed here, producer of Take a Moment. During our conversation with Steve Chaparro, we recognize the need for empathy and understanding during this difficult time caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. For those working remotely from our homes, it's a very different culture and the need to pivot and rethink how we do business in the future is more important than ever. But Genesis is here to help customers with rapid response options for increased demand and remote teams. For additional information, please check out the resources below on genesis.com. You can tune in to our on-demand webinar where we discuss the new normal and what it looks like in the contact center space and how products like Genesis Cloud and Predictive Engagement are here to help with this lift. And as always, thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe and share and stay tuned for the next episode of Take a Moment. And we are back with Steve Chaparro, who is a design strategist. And we just had a great conversation with you so far. And I want to kind of continue off of what you mentioned about your experience and all the different ways you've been essentially architecting your career. A lot of the things that you talk about, you've been involved with culture design in a vast variety of industries from big business all the way to churches. And I'm wanting to know, is there a common thread? Is there a common human thread that you're seeing across all of these organizations that you've had the opportunity to work with? Yeah, I would say that the, the common thing that I've seen is that leaders are human. And the challenges that leaders face at a corporate business environment in the boardroom are the very same leadership challenges that church leaders may face or nonprofits or in civic government. There are a lot of challenges. And, and you know, it goes back to, I, I constantly refer to this conversation I had with my father-in-law. My father-in-law as we were beginning to have children, he gave me some really wise counsel. He said, Steve, if I want my children to change, I have to change first. Things are changing. 
in this world. I love the Marshall Goldsmith quote, what got you here will get you there. And that is so true. It's true for every generation, regardless. It's not about the Gen X. It's not about the millennials. It's not about Gen Z. It's about every transition of generations. And I think the world is so volatile. It's so uncertain. It's so complex. It's so ambiguous that we can't use best practices and organizational structures that have served us well in the past. And so if we truly want to adapt to the changing environment of business, the changing environment of the economy, this whole thing of COVID, I think leaders, if they truly want to see lasting, sustainable impact and transformation in the organizations, they have to look inside first. It almost, it's a culture of one themselves. And then how does that translate to their executive team, to their management team, and to their employees at every level, I think that that has been something that I've seen. I I remember one time I was with an organization and they were talking about how they had pretty much been flat in their growth for over a 10 year period. And the leader of that organization believed that their physical environment was part of the problem, that the physical environment, the workplace, the place where their users, customers, if you will, would go and and interact with the organization, that that was becoming a lid. And so they needed to expand their facilities to a much bigger thing. The more and more I looked at it, I remember one time we were in a room with his board and he was kind of just talking. And he said, like, I don't know why we haven't grown in 10 years. I don't know what the problem is. You know, it could be this or, or maybe it's me. Oh my gosh. The room, it was so silent because I had surmised by that time that that actually indeed was the problem. It was not the facilities. It was not the leadership under him. There was a lot of pressure that that leader was under because in a sense, this was the culmination of about a 20 plus year leadership. This situation was going to make or break his legacy. So there was a lot of pressure on him and a lot of desperation to find easy fixes, even though a building project may not seem like an easy fix but a building project is much easier to fix than the building rebuilding project of a person inside. And so in that particular case, after repeated discussions, I as an outside consultant understood that this leader was not gonna be responsive to the wisdom that was being brought to the table. And so we actually as an organization decided that we needed to, to step back and actually bow out because if the leader wasn't about to make some changes themselves, then this wasn't going to happen. We see this time and time again. There are really strong cultures in a lot of companies. A strong culture doesn't necessarily mean a healthy one. In fact, strong cultures can be many times, if they are unhealthy, can actually be a distractor and a barrier to actually the organization getting healthier. So sometimes when you're looking at a culture, you almost have to deconstruct the things that were before. And I think COVID-19 is an opportunity to do that in many cases. Someone said before that in time of war, leaders are made. And I think that during this time, it's almost like a warlike response all of society is having to make. The leaders that are good will rise and the leaders that are not so good will, in a sense, they will be revealed as emperors with no clothes. 
I like what you said about the comparison to war. Um, I was on a webinar where General McChrystal was making that exact same comparison of the situation that we're in right now to what he was experiencing as he was leading our U.S. troops overseas. So you talk about transformation. You talk about when you go into a company and you know that there needs to be some radical change that happens. And sometimes that has to happen from that leader. You mentioned before the leader as the cultural architect. And as we're looking into the future, right, post-COVID and having to transform, how does that start? Where does that start? Is it the leader? Is it a ground swelling? I mean, transformation is is that classic story that we always yeah. hear. So where do you feel that kind of starts in this post-COVID world? Yeah. That's a great question. I think when I talk about leader as a cultural architect, I think about that as at one point it's appropriate for he or she to act as a cultural architect. And, you know, early on in the lifespan of a company, say a startup, it's really important that that founder and that CEO really act as that architect and say, hey, this is the vision of where we want the company to be. This is what it looks like. I am going to embody that every single day. I'm going to model it for you. I'm going to invite you to be part of this team. And when it's small, there's the beautiful sense of belonging to that company. As it grows, the first thing that grows is their ability to scale the customer experience. That's the first thing that usually happens. What many times lags behind is them being able to scale the culture. And realizing and maybe even grieving the fact that what they had as a smaller company cannot necessarily be scaled in its purest form, that it will continue to evolve as more and more layers in the organization start to develop. So I think that many times a leader needs to transition from being that cultural architect, the one who has the vision, can design what that looks like, and can tell people, this is what I want you to do, this is what I, I believe it looks like, Transitioning from that architect to a facilitator, because how many of leaders out there have ever encountered a COVID-19 environment? I would say zero. Yes, we've gone through other things before. We've gone through other recessions, other downturns, all of those. Those are lessons that we can learn from that. But when we even talk to, like my sister's a therapist, and she says, a lot of people are coming to me to help me help them figure out what the way forward is. She says, honestly, we don't have necessarily answers for them because we have not necessarily experienced a collective grieving experience like this before. So we're having to learn. So I think that leaders, when we talk about transformation, it's about releasing control. It's about understanding that they can point in a specific direction and say, hey, we want to move in that direction, but I don't know what the destination looks like. I need, need you, my executive team, my management team, my employees, I need to involve you to help us collectively understand, collectively make sense, collectively come up with ideas, prototype some of those ideas and test those moving forward. And obviously that comes from my design thinking background, that this human-centered design, having empathy, when a leader is able to think that way and say, I don't have all the answers. If I hire a third-party consultant, they won't have all the answers because they don't know our culture better than our employees do. So if the employees are in fact the best subject matter experts of our culture, why not harness that collective genius and have them help us determine what that looks like? I think a leader 
in a sense, needs to declare sort of the spirit of what that direction looks like, but allow the employees to help give flesh to that idea. Steve, give me a sense of your concept of story. I've heard you say the word story a lot. I know you have spoken about story quite a bit. You and I are both fans of Donald Miller, uh, mm-hmm. Story Brand Approach, and Nancy Duarte's work and her books as well. Give me a sense of how you would recommend that businesses shape their brand story and also how they're able to deliver the brand promise and becomes the fullest extension of fulfillment of their brand experience. How does story inform that? There's so much to that. And I think my understanding of story has continued to evolve and has continued to shape as well as I read. Obviously, I'm a huge fanboy of Nancy Duarte. I'm part of the facilitator team there. I'm also a big fan of of Donald Miller. I know that they're friends and they, they learn from each other. One of the things that I learned most from the work at Duarte is that when you're talking about story, the hero of that story is not the company. And that was something that was really interesting and powerful for me to understand. And because a lot of times when we think about marketing and brand stories, like, hey, here we are, we're a great company. We have these services, products, or experiences. We think they will make your life better. And here's why you should work with us. As opposed to, hey, we understand that you are this likable character and you're gonna encounter some problems Here is a way for us to articulate the problems that you have. We're going to come into your story, into your journey as a guide. We have some methodologies, some products, some services that can help you along that journey so that you can go from point A to point B in your story and you're going to emerge triumphant. You're going to emerge transformed in your journey. For one, it comes down to first understanding your target customer, understanding their pain points, their wants, their needs, their desires. What is the transformation that you want to see them experience after and during working with you? It's important, one, to understand your customer, your user, your client, whoever that is, and then understand how you as a company are uniquely qualified to deliver an experience that delights both them and your employees. So it's a journey of discovery. And I think one of the things that I learned even at Visioneering Studios, the firm, the architecture firm, was it is not about manufacturing that story. It's about extracting that story. That story is already there. And and I remember working with a lot of organizations where we would lead them through this discovery process. When we would ask them different questions about their own experience with their own company, we started to find threads that were common. And when you pull that common thread, that red thread, if you will, and you start to see, okay, now it's almost like a Venn diagram, a sweet spot of all of those collective experiences and stories. And when you're able to extract that, what's important is it's not just the purpose and mission of the customer, but it's the purpose and mission of each employee that has embraced this mission. Because we believe in the mission and purpose of this company, it aligns with my own. Therefore, this is going to be a great experience for all involved. I wish we could just have another hour to talk about that alone. That's pushing a lot of my uh, interest buttons. I did want to ask you about one thing, though. You are an accomplished public speaker. You've spoken in a number of different forums, and I do some presentation about, or I do some workshops about presentation as well. So I'm always interested in our guests sharing their experiences with public speaking 
and maybe best practices. Uh, are there a couple of things that you have learned from the first time that you got a paid gig to get up in front of a thousand people and mm -hmm. speak? What have you learned from that first time to being now a seasoned speaking professional? I had a conversation with my dad recently because I was given a workshop and one of my fellow facilitators was telling me, hey, like, does your dad know how many times you quote what he's taught you about speaking? My dad was a pastor. I come from a long line of, of pastors in my family, on both sides of my family. And my dad taught me a ton of things. One of the things he talked was about just having eye contact with people. Whether you were leading worship, whether you were speaking, whether you were given a workshop, whatever, eye contact was your way of connecting because they're your audience. They're the hero of this interaction. And if you're not interacting with them, that wasn't part of it. I, I think another thing that I learned, and these are all quips that are not necessarily Donald Miller or Nancy Duarte, but it's not what's taught that's important. It's what's caught that's important. I mean, it doesn't matter what you say. It only matters what they leave with. What are the things that they leave with? And many times speakers can say a lot of stuff, but people in the moment might, might think, man, that was brilliant. That was some awesome stuff. That was some deep and powerful things that he was saying. But you ask him two hours later, oh, what did he talk about? Oh, I don't remember, but it was so good. Really? Was it? Was it? Was that just a frothy experience or did you actually come away impacted in a way that you are deciding to make a change? And so I think when you talk about presentations, it's about how can you inspire? How can you inform? How can you persuade people to move from A to B? That's what true story is about. Story is about persuasion. And if you're not persuading people, all you're really doing is giving them a report. You're giving them a status report. And too many times in presentations, we settle on just the informing part. A true presentation that is filled with story will inspire, will persuade, and will transform. It's that saying of don't talk at your people to include them into that conversation. Love the passion that you bring around culture and design and especially story. I kind of want to end on that piece of story. For you, what is the story of our new normal? On one hand, I, I think I, there's a lot of people that really hate that term, new normal. I actually don't have a problem with it. And I would say that our current new normal is a snapshot, is a snapshot in time. You know, who knows what that's the duration of that snapshot. If it's three, four, five months, if it goes into 2021, 20, we don't know. But I would like to believe that coming out of this, that there will be much more empathy, much more intentionality, that we will learn what it means to breathe physically, mentally, emotionally, that we will learn the importance of rest again at all levels. We can try to say, well, if I'm going to be really productive moving from home, I need to be able to look at eight hours worth of work. No, I think just as a body heals from a surgery, we need to heal our spirits, need to heal our minds, and even heal our bodies in some degree with rest. I think that we will have a greater appreciation for being present. And I think being present without necessarily having physical presence. Yeah, I've heard a lot of stories of people who have reconnected with classmates from 10, 20 years ago, and now they're having weekly Zoom calls and they're saying, really, did it really take COVID-19 for this to happen? Actually, yes. Now, there are a lot of really horrible and bad things that are happening during this time. And we, we all hear that. We hear the news about people that are infected, the people that have passed, the, the lunacy of the way people think and lead. Okay, all of these things that are true. 
there is bad and there's ugly about this, but there's actually a ton of things that are beautiful that come out of this. And I hope that we will forever be impacted. And, and I hope it didn't necessarily take this, but if it did, let it be true that we, that humanity will be better off for it after going through COVID-19. Steve, I know Mari and I have treasured this time with you and your insights. I wish we had six more hours that we could pick your brain, but we definitely appreciate you joining us today and sharing your insights with our listeners. Thank you for taking a moment with us. Thank you guys. This has been a blast.